Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we chatted with a master game maker, discussed conspiracies in modern politics, and learned about shifts in modern medicine. All this plus size matters and are we cool yet, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for May 17, 2019. John Daly chatted with Ken Height, a leading maker of tabletop role-playing games. Height discussed the origins of role-playing games, why he thinks they are one of the most vital art forms today, and how any game can be made better by adding magical elves. Radio Free Bridgeport with John Daly airs every Tuesday, drive time. Kenneth Height, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. So we uh, actually got you on the show, um, not only because we're interested in what you do, but Gene Ha was on the show a couple weeks ago. and he <laughs> Legendary was tra- Eisner Award-winning creator Gene Ha. That is correct. Uh, creator of uh, Top Ten with uh, Alan Moore and a bunch of other stuff. actually obligated to say that whenever his name comes up. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he tried to get us to sign something, and I wouldn't. So right. yeah. uh, I, that probably was it. But May is a great book, too. Yeah, oh, May is amazing. Uh, new issue, by the way, is just out. I think it dropped last Wednesday. So if you, if you heard our interview with Gene Ha, go to your local... Uh, local comic book shop and check that out. He mentioned you and spoke very highly of you and actually put us in contact. And uh, as we are uh, kind of nerds over here, though, I always preface this introduction by saying that I, I actually never play role-playing games. And I don't know a thing about them. So you have to talk to me like the idiot I am. Ken, welcome to the show. And tell us a little bit about, first of all, how you got into this field and, and what it is exactly that you do. Um, what I, I think I'll go Second question first. What it is that I do is that I write role-playing games. But, uh, I write a lot of stuff, but role-playing games is sort of the big mountain in the middle of the stuff that I write. And uh, everyone knows what role-playing games are now. Thank you, uh, Generation X and Millennials, for breaking the, the chains and getting it out there. Uh, but uh, I write the games that the, the big books that people set down and ideally ignore during play. I write those. And that can be writing the rules, that can be writing settings, that can be writing campaigns, that can be writing adventures. It's whatever it is that facilitates play at the table. And that's my, for lack of a better term, career. Uh, <laughs> and has been since I made myself completely unfit for civilian employment uh, in the mid-90s by accidentally falling into this gig. And the way that I got into it, and this worked in 1996, and I don't think it works now, and it certainly didn't work then, really. But uh, I had a friend who worked at a different role-playing game company. I'd run Call of Cthulhu, which is a terrific role-playing game, for him back in the 80s in college. And he remembered me when he got a playtest manuscript of a different game from a different company, Chaosium. And they got a a manuscript called Nephilim, which was a translation of a French game that uh, had a lot of very cool things going on and a lot of things that were completely wrong with it. But he said, gosh... It's a game about black magic conspiracies and alien monsters. Who do I know that is that? And he said, oh, my buddy Ken. So he sends me the manuscript, and I write up about 11,000 words of of backsass and send it into Chaosium. And I get an email back from Greg Stafford, the founder of Chaosium, one of the legendary Mount Rushmore figures of the hobby, saying, that was great stuff. Uh, Can we use it? We'll pay you. What's the next book you're writing for us? And, you know, in, in my circles, when Greg Stafford puts his hand down out of, out of the clouds off Mount Olympus and says, you're writing a book for us, you don't say, well, actually, I, I work for an insurance company. I, I don't think that's going <laughs> to. No, you buckle down, you write a secret society's book for Nephilim. And at roughly the same time, uh, me and a couple of other friends had put together a book called uh, a, a Bunch of Alternate Histories because we were all history fans. Uh, two of them were history majors at the University of Chicago. And we'd screw around doing alternate history riffs. 
And uh, Steve Jackson Games had a list of things we'd like to see, and they had a game uh, called GURPS Time Travel. And one of the things they wanted to see was alternate histories for that book. And so we said, we can write alternate histories better than most people. We put together a proposal, sent it into Steve Jackson, where it uh, uh, dropped without a ripple. And, but at uh, because I was in Chicago and Gen Con at that time was in Milwaukee, and because I had a relationship uh, with Chaosium of uh, uh, sort of going up and volunteering to run Call of Cthulhu at, at Gen Con, I could go to Gen Con for like the price of a train ticket. That was my whole cost. So I would show up at Gen Con every year, run stuff for Chaosium, and then because I had a Chaosium badge, Steve Jackson could not ignore me and run away because I was an exhibitor. So I could go to him and say, hey, man, what about that proposal? And I did that literally every year until finally he said, look, let me get this other game out. I promise I will look at your proposal. I will give you an answer, and then you will stop bothering me. But haha, joke was on him. My proposal was great, and his answer was, <laughs> let's publish this. So basically in roughly the same six-month, eight-month period, I had two solid book offers from two uh, major publishers and I started writing it, and eventually it became apparent to my wife first, and then shortly thereafter to me, that I enjoyed writing role-playing games way more than I enjoyed working for an insurance company. And she said, why don't you do that full-time? And I said, because there's no money in it. But that didn't dissuade anyone, and eventually we uh, you know, stumbled onto a way to you know, sort of do it full-time and keep the lights on. And that was mostly by doing a couple of Star Trek games back-to-back, which... Oh, I was going to say, I thought it was robbing banks. Uh, robbing banks yeah. also works, but that's that's one of those... Day job, day jobs. Gotcha. Right. You know, you, you got to have the cover. Um, and, uh, and so basically I have been doing that now for two decades. No sign of stopping. And as I say previously, I literally am unemployable at this point. So I'd better keep doing it. So this makes perfect sense because the, I, we had a conversation with Gene and he started talking about certain scenarios. And I think we I, I made the comment that um, alternative history, particularly like Project Paperclip, Occult, and I said two more words, and then he said, "Well, you have to talk." Right. Yeah, <laughs> he yeah. said, "We have to, we have to uh, talk on air." So now it makes perfect sense. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Ken, what you talk about the books, and again, I, remember, I'm a moron, so you, right. you got to use very small words around me. But what what is it about the book that is so central to the the role playing game experience? And also, what exactly is in a book. I mean, when I think of books, I think of things that teachers made me read that I didn't enjoy very much. What's what's different about it for a role-playing game? Well, I mean, in a role-playing game, uh, the book has, uh, well, first of all, you volunteered to read it, so that problem was solved. Uh, but the, uh, but uh, the, the book of a role-playing game, by and large, has two main components. It has the rules, the actual who rolls dice when, how do you know if you stab that guy systems, and it has the world in which you're doing that. And that world can be sort of an assumed world, like Dungeons & Dragons, where we know there's dungeons, we know there's dragons, there's elves. All right, we're done. Or it can be a more uh, fully built-out world, like Vampire uh, the Masquerade, where there's a bunch of vampire clans and a bunch of bad guys that are uh, creeping around in the shadows, and there's uh, thousands of years of politics and backstory, and you have to sort of convey that to the player so that they can immerse themselves in that universe. So it's Half of it is technical writing that's here is how the dice work, and half of it is here is what that die roll means in the context of the game. Does it mean you've uh, got a magic ring? Does it mean you've shamed the vampire prince of Cleveland? Does it mean what? And the what is the part that I find more interesting than the how, but for the how, you have to at least have a, 
a relatively solid grounding in, you know, statistics and, and math and all the other things that we had to do that we didn't want to when we would rather have been talking about vampires and Project Paperclip. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that's interesting. I was actually going to ask you next, like, what was the more interesting thing? It strikes me that this is akin to world building that you would see in fantasy or science fiction or comic books. Uh, and what you're trying to do is create a place where, correct me if I'm wrong, players can come in and experience a world that you've set up. But also I think the trick must be then allowing them to create greater parts of that world for themselves. So when, you know, if I'm writing fiction or I'm writing comic books, for example, I, I kind of know what the beginning and the ending is. I know how the world is contained. I might be working with someone else's world, but I generally know what the start and the end is. Is it difficult for you when you're doing this to kind of have that open-ended feeling in your writing, knowing that you're you're kind of just setting the ground rules in a sense for somebody and that's other people are going to build on that and, and that's so critical to their experience. They have to be able not only to enjoy it if they're novice players, but they're, if they're experienced players and they're going to be playing this campaign for a while, they're going to rework and, and change this world and do different things with it. I mean, that's the, that's the core thing that makes role-playing games different from other art forms is like you say, the fact that the players are co-building their own experience. If I'm watching a Marvel movie, I may have my own ideas as to how it should end. Doesn't matter. They ended the way they're going to end it. I may think, well, you did Captain America wrong, or you did Iron Man wrong, but too bad. But if I'm playing Captain America or I'm playing Iron Man, I get to put that into the game and bring that in and make it a collaborative, a truly collaborative story, a collaborative art form. And that's what I think a lot of role-playing game designers uh, certainly need to keep in mind is that they're not writing novels with math. They are writing sort of big, exciting launch pads for someone else to take their story somewhere else. And that may mean staying within the constraints of the previously established world. And that's some of the fun is, okay, we can't, you know, violate any of the rules of, of, of vampire lore as set out in vampire, or it can be you know, I hate those guys. I'm going to kill them. I'm going to destroy their empire. I'm going to change the world forever. And that's on the players and on the the game master, the storyteller, whoever they happen to be, so that you are co-creating this world. And rather than just have an empty racquetball net to bounce it off of, you've got an exciting, vibrant world that will hit you back if you hit it. And that's the goal, I think, of anyone who's designing a setting is that something more interesting has to be happening than... Look at that, a pile of treasure. Uh, th there has to be at least some guy who doesn't want you to take that pile of treasure. And ideally, that guy should have friends and relatives and patron gods and a secret direwolf and whatever else that will come mess with you if you try and mess with him. And then story happens because you may say, well, that guy sounds dangerous. Let's go beat up his uncle and make him, you know, uh, give us the treasure to get his uncle back. Or you may say, let's just, you know, go beat, beat up a bunch of little guys, armor up and then take on his direwolf. And that degree of player decision and player strategy is what makes it more fun than even a, an interactive computer game where, you know, the guys at, um, uh, at Bungie or whoever, they've written five options at the table. There's an infinity of options. You can literally do anything and the, the game master has to roll with it. And that's, that's the fun. That's what makes it truly collaborative. <laughs>
Nancy Clem spoke with Beatrice Sakiska, Samara Ray, and Dr. Tulio Robero about changing perceptions around so-called alternative medicine. The trio discussed how acupuncture and chiropractic practice have enjoyed a renewal thanks to the opioid epidemic. Spontaneous Vegetation with Nancy Clem airs the second and fourth Sunday of the month at 5 p.m. You are from Blue Island Traditional Medicine. So when I think about traditional medicine, I think about it connected with to culture, food, art, ritual, care of each other, care of an environment. And so it somehow traditional medicine recognizes us as part of a living organism. But I'd like to hear how you use the term in your practice and why you decided to to name your clinic Blue Island Traditional Medicine. For Mother's Day, I'm just going to say I never thought about like what my associations were with this term as a standalone, oh. like traditional medicine until you just said it. Oh, okay. Um, I think because we were like in a whole brainstorm of words. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you say that, it makes me think of something so maternal, right? Like, so Mm -hmm. someone like using spit to get dirt off your face Mm -hmm. and like traditional (laughs) medicine being like these early years of like contact and support and care. Mm -hmm. But that is not why we named the clinic that. Well, but I do think that it is um, in a sense. And that we have tried to create a space that is very much about care and personal connection and does have that, you know, loving energy attached to the medicine itself and recognizing that that's part of medicine is part of healing as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Not necessarily, you know, deriving from a particular tradition, you know, just more the tradition of, you know, caring for one another and... Mm -hmm you know, the world around us. We've tried to make it specific to the place that we're in and creating a space that's beautiful and that people want to be in. Mm -hmm. So I'd like you to all talk about the tradition behind your practice. So you each have different practices. So we just heard from Samara, so I thought maybe you could speak, Samara, to acupuncture. Now, acupuncture is really old (laughs) and I'd like you to speak towards that and then maybe some basic principles that people might not realize that you're um, using uh, when you are working on them. Yeah, so traditional Chinese medicine is very old and, um, and it's a beautiful medicine. It's a complete medicine and we use acupuncture, of course, but also Chinese herbs, cupping, gua sha, a lot of different modalities. And... One thing I love about it as a medicine is that there's um, there's a poetry to it as well, um, and that you know a lot of the treatments, you know, the most poetic treatments are also the most biomedically effective as well, and that when you're engaging people on the level of um, you know their minds, their spirit, their emotion, as well as their physical bodies, that treatments are. Um, you know, become more effective because you're treating the whole person in this totally different way. And I love that this is a medicine that allows for that and has it built into the medicine itself. So you've mentioned a couple different practices within what you do. Mm-hmm. Can you speak towards some of them that, that folks might not be familiar with, like such as cupping or gua sha? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 
cupping. People have probably seen images of cupping. Um, it's become more popular. It's very old treatment, but um, we use um, either glass or plastic cups to create suction on the body, and then the suction um, helps to break up um, you know, deposits of lactic and uric acid, knots in the system, as well as flushing the area of fresh blood, accelerates the healing process. It feels great, um, helps a lot with back pain, but also with, um, with lung function. Atulia, also, you can jump in if there's <laughs> other things. Um, I think you're d- explaining it wonderfully. Like, okay, thank you. you know. Do you um, use cupping in chiropractic medicine? So too? I'm also trained in uh, traditional Chinese medicine. Uh. So um, uh, cupping can be a part of a chiropractic treatment mm-hmm. because it does like break up stagnation and relieve muscle tension. So um, you know that all aids in kind of getting us to the point where we can manipulate the spine in a way that's, you know, like the, the body's relaxed, so it's gonna be more receptive to mm-hmm. this added motion. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, um, I guess I can kind of yeah. take it away with the chiropractic. Uh, chiropractic is not as old as acupuncture. Um, it actually, as we know it, was kind of developed uh, by a man named Daniel David Palmer in- I was like, just reading this. So late 1950s. Actually, at uh, Palmer College of Chiropractic, in Iowa, they have a spot that was, or there's a like a monument at a spot that was supposedly the site of the first adjustment. Um, <laughs> that's, you know, like, it depends on how, like, what your point of view is. Bone setting is a tradition that is time, like, old as time out of mind. Like, you know, it's been happening for a very long time. Uh, therapies like Tui Na, which is, um, which is a form of Chinese body work, um, you know, that's traditionally, bone setting has traditionally been a part of Tui Na. So, um, you know, it's not to say that chiropractic isn't, or like adjustments of the spine and of the the joints, the articulations aren't a part of Chinese medicine. It's just as we know it now and as it's been kind of legislated and, you know, defined Mm -hmm. legally, you don't typically hear about chiropractic, or excuse me, acupuncturists uh, performing any kind of spinal manipulation that's not in the scope of practice. But um, having both a chiropractic and acupuncture background, I feel like, you know, in terms of using traditional medicine, you know, I feel very like blessed to have such an, a huge toolbox. Mm-hmm. Um, with chiropractic, what we're essentially trying to do is to like harness the power of the nervous system. Uh, what your brain cares the most about in terms of the feedback that it's constantly getting from your limbs, from your sensory organs, is where your body is in space. It's called proprioception or joint position sense. Um, and uh, something I heard a lot going through chiropractic school was the fact, or this a statement like, movement modulates pain. So when you first touch like a hot stove, um, you know, your first instinct is to pull away and oftentimes you'll like shake your hand. And that's because your brain, like your, it's a reflex. Your, your, your brain cares more about where your hand is in space mm-hmm. than it does about the fact that you just burned yourself. So kind of inundating your, yourself with all of that sensory input of where your hand is in space is helping to kind of take down that like increased uh, sensory information of that pain from that burn. So what we're doing with chiropractic is, I mean, the, the joints of the spine are highly innervated. There's a lot of sensory information coming from those joints to your brain because they're critically important in keeping your, your, uh, your line of sight level with the horizon. 
and you know that's where so much of your proprioception is coming from. Mm-hmm. So when we're when I'm adjusting the spine, what I'm doing is giving the body like a huge dose, like basically just a shot of proprioception, and essentially that's how we're modulating the pain that a patient might be feeling when they come in for a chiropractic visit. Well, that's so different when I think about how bodies are viewed in acupuncture, which isn't this proprio- proprioception, but it's more of a maybe. Um, I think about somatics with you, B, and I'm wondering, I'm wondering if we could bounce back to either you, Samara, and talk a little bit more about how the body treatment is an orientation slightly different than chiropractor. In, I think chiropractor mm-hmm. in acupuncture. I can't make a side by side comparison. Yeah. You actually, Tuli would be best equipped for that. But um. I think the what I've sort of what I started to talk about with like the poetry there, what yeah. I've ended up pulling in my like understanding of the body from Chinese medicine is this idea of body as landscape. Um, and so like the talk of climate, you know, like is it hot, is it cold, is it damp, is it dry? Um, is the energy rising, is it sinking? Um, is it like a craggy mountain or is it like a swampy valley? And when we start thinking about you know, somebody's entire body and that's in that way and also regions of the body or certain systems in the sense of a landscape that we might need to like remediate in some way or um, or just how the ecosystem functions as a whole with the parts in relation to one another. Chinese medicine is a lot about relations. Mm-hmm. So like the relation of the liver to the spleen or, um, you know, of one system to the other, and how well are they getting along? Um, so I like that it lends itself well to this like whole ecosystem mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there's just like a wealth of metaphors there that change the way that we think about our body instead of like, oh, well, my elbow's broken, or like, I have a cardiovascular problem. Um, instead, thinking about this like beautiful relational landscape and ecosystem, I think just sets the framework for a different understanding of health and the body. Mm-hmm. So how old is acupuncture? 3,000 years? 3,000 years, yeah. We've yeah. <laughs> And bone setting has been... Around just as long. Probably yeah. just around just as long because we've had bodies for a while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, B, you've, um, you work in a lot of different um, massage styles or bodywork styles. And I've been on the table with you uh, many times. And I was wondering if you could speak to some of these traditions that you work in and borrow from, and also how this um, connects to your work with animals. Hmm. Um, Well, I mostly do trigger point therapy. So this is based on like these injections. It's the works of these two doctors, Travell and Simons. They Mm -hmm. did all these like studies with injections, and from that, they like figured out these referral patterns that happen in muscles. I mostly do that mm-hmm. because it keeps things, I think it's really effective. And also I like having a really mechanical approach sometimes and like the way that I'm approaching a person or their pain or their symptoms. It, I don't know, that's like a system that works for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I also incorporate a lot of styles of Thai body work mm-hmm. where I'm moving with my breathing. It's almost like a moving, moving meditation. But I think more than anything, my work is probably informed by the work that I've done with animals, right? So I'm like comfortable having contact with other mammals and I've done it a lot. And I think that that has sort of changed my relationship with how I approach other humans' bodies where that could feel 
I mean, unless it's like a maternal situation that could feel like really loaded or potentially sexual or like awkward or, you know, Mm -hmm. you feel like someone else's body or your own is like really precious. So you don't want to push too hard or you don't want to. And I feel like I've that's contact and varying degrees of contact in that way have become really normalized to me because like grooming a horse if this is painful for the horse, it's probably going to let me know. So I don't have to sort of walk on eggshells around it thinking, oh, can I can I pick its foot up to pick it? And I think the same thing has happened with people where I'm like, oh, they'll let me. Someone's going to tell me. And I, you know, we have this communication too where I tell people, you let me know. Hey, Jessica, you want to go grab a bite? I was thinking we could work on my autobiography, Kyle, the War Years, that I've been talking about. I would love to, Kyle, but I'm actually super tapped out. I had to send some money back to my friends in Joliet. <laughs> it's okay, Jess. I'm loaded. I got a ton of cash from the scrapyard. <laughs> How? Ed's always leaving those metal kegs around the place, and this guy on Halstead gives me two bucks apiece. Kyle, A piece. You- uh, you know what? Never mind. Eat the rich. Where do you want to go? I was thinking the hash over at George's is pretty good. No way, Kyle. Anywhere but there. All right, that's fine. How about the Bridgeport Diner? It's good, but I'm banned, remember? The whole right. thing with the card tricks and the furs. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, uh, how about that place on 35th that replaced Remova? Uh, what you call it? Uh, Maury's? Maury's? Uh, What's the matter, Jess? Oh. It's just my mom works there. Hold on a sec. You're mine, Bridgeport. How come you ain't not said nothing about it yet? She and I don't really get along super well. Ah, jeez. A mother's supposed to be her daughter's best friend. That cannot be true. Or eh, at least it's not true for me. What, what you mean? Oh, God, Kyle. Where to begin? Oh, how about one of them audio flashbacks you like? Oh, my God, wow. It's like some of what I say gets into your head. They grow up so fast. It all began when I was a child. People were always saying that my mother and I looked alike, but whereas I have perfect, impeccable diction, my mom, well... Are you going to take all day in there? And as I grew older, it grew worse. I excelled in debate, choir, even ventriloquism. My mom couldn't handle it. Every time I opened my mouth in public, there she was. You know, I was considered for a part with the Supremes, but I was just too real for that scene. No, you weren't. Stop hogging my flashback. You don't know anything. You're just a kid. I, and it's true. I was just a kid until my mother stole my uh, boyfriend. Then apparently I was an accessory. An accessory? Like a purse or something? Sure. The point is, I don't want to see Diane. She stays on her side of Bridgeport. I stay on my side and a little bit of West Undertown because there's some really nice views there. Hold on a second. What did you say her name was? Diane. My, my mom's name is Diane. I used to know a Diane. Real well, in fact. Oh, yeah? You better cue up the flashback noise. So it was 1986. Gung Ho took its place in cinematic legend alongside Police Academy Tree. Everybody was Wang Chunging. I wore more complicated jeans. I was working as a wall washer at the erotic warehouse. 
I was young, dumb, and full of... Come on, Kyle. What? I was full of ambition. I was looking to work my way up from wall washer to videotape rewinder. Anywho, before I was so rudely interrupted... I was in Grant Park surveying the lunchtime garbage as I want to do when along walked the most beautiful creature that I have ever laid eyes on. And walking that Airedale was a set of legs topped with curly black hair and a catchy grin. You looking for a meal, sailor? Yeah, you knows it, honey. You want half this pizza crust? I was thinking maybe something a little classier. And that's how we ended up at Bennigan's. Kyle, can we skip the romantic montage and get to the point? Nah, it wasn't that romantic. But it was really dirty. Ugh, gross. That summer was the most magical I can recall. I ate people food almost every night. The boss gave me a bigger squeegee, and Diane and I would sit out late and just watch the stars. Oh, what happened? I don't know, Jess. One day, Diane left me a note saying... That she had to go take care of something and wouldn't be back for several months, and that was the last I ever seen of her. Well, that's pretty depressing for a variety of reasons. Listen, if you want to go to Maury's, we can go. I guess it's okay. Thanks. Yeah, being sad makes me hungry. Purple stacks, Adam Eve on a raft, wreck mood juice in 51, and sweep the floor. Hi, Mom. Jessica, what, you living around here? <sighs> Mom, you know I do. You were screaming bloody murder at my apartment last night for 45 minutes. I was. Does that idiot Terry live with you? No, Mom. Anyways, this is Kyle. This is the guy that I've been working with for the radio. Well, you know, I always said you had a face for radio. Diane? Wait. Kyle? Wait, you know this Diane? Oh, yeah. Real well. Just please, no. Kyle and I used to hang right around when you were born, actually. Come to think of it, you two do look an awful lot alike. We We do do not. not. I'm much prettier. Wait, 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 wait. Mom, you knew Kyle in 1986. Listen, babe, I gotta go to the crapper. I think Lenny's passed out in there again. We'll catch up later. This week on The Trump Diaries, Rudy Giuliani tries to get Ukraine to meddle in the 2020 elections. Subpoenas fly as Trump is, quote, daring us to impeach him. Russia's manipulations deepen. Florida's election rolls are hacked. Trump Jr. is ordered to testify. Trump tries to pressure Don McGahn. And Trump is now the focus of 29 separate investigations. These are The Trump Diaries. Day 841, May 10th, the House Ways and Means Committee subpoenaed Stephen Mnuchin over Trump's tax returns. IRS Commissioner Charles Reddick was also served with a subpoena. Mnuchin has rejected the committee's request for the returns, claiming they serve no legislative purpose. Congress is, in fact, entitled to see the returns under a 1924 law. Trump claimed that former Secretary of State John Kerry violated the Logan Act, claiming that Kerry told Iran not to talk to Trump. Quote, John Kerry speaks to them a lot. John Kerry tells them not to call. That's a violation of the Logan Act, and frankly, he should be prosecuted on that. But my people don't want to do anything that's only the Democrats do that kind of stuff, you know? The reason Trump's people don't want to do anything is because this is apparently utterly fictitious. Trump's claims, however, put Attorney General William Barr back in the hot seat. During congressional testimony under direct questioning from Kamala Harris, Barr was asked if Trump had asked him to open an investigation into anyone else. Barr, caught off guard, dissembled. 
The House easily passed a $19.1 billion disaster relief package for farmers and communities hit by wildfires, hurricanes, floods, and other natural disasters. This includes Puerto Rico. Trump had called on House Republicans to vote down that bill, calling it the Bad Democrat Disaster Supplemental Bill, and falsely claiming Puerto Rico had received $91 billion of aid and wasted it. 30 Republicans voted in support of the bill. Trump has tried to cut the American territory off since it was devastated by Hurricane Maria. He has also previously tried to claim that relief aid to states was being held hostage by Democrats, calling them very divisive people. Robert Mueller confirmed he would appear before the House Judiciary Committee to discuss the findings of his report. He had tentatively been scheduled to appear this Wednesday. Trump raised tariffs on $200 billion worth of Chinese goods and took steps to tax nearly all of China's imports. In a strange and rambling press conference, Trump said he received a beautiful letter from Xi Jinping, but then said there is no need to rush to secure a trade deal with China. Adam Schiff subpoenaed the Justice Department for, quote, counterintelligence and foreign intelligence from the Robert Mueller investigation. The Intelligence Committee said it had no choice but to serve the subpoena after the Justice Department, quote, repeatedly failed to respond, refused to schedule any testimony, provided no documents responsive to our legitimate and duly authorized oversight activities. The White House has kicked virtually every journalist out. Sarah Huckabee Sanders purged the so-called hard pass list, which allowed them to enter the White House grounds without seeking daily permission. Sanders then granted exemptions to strict new attendance rules to the White House, rules which it should be noted that not even Trump would meet. The effect is that journalists are now allowed on the grounds at Sanders' pleasure. The move is thought to be a reaction to the court ordering the White House to reinstate CNN's Jim Acosta, who was banned after criticizing Trump and calling Sanders a liar. Date 142, May 11th. Alleged lawyer Rudy Giuliani scheduled a trip to Ukraine to try and encourage a foreign government to pursue an investigation into Joe Biden's son Hunter and Hunter's involvement in a gas company owned by a Ukrainian oligarch. Giuliani also apparently hoped to get the Ukrainian government to give cover to the jailed Paul Manafort. He had worked for the Ukraine as an unregistered foreign agent and laundered money there. Giuliani also made it clear he was heading to Ukraine at Trump's behest to, quote, dig up dirt on what Trump has called the dirty dossier and the witch hunt. Giuliani's bizarre scheme, which, to be clear, sees a representative of a sitting U.S. president attempt to collude with a foreign nation to meddle in an upcoming presidential election, comes on the heels of a two-year investigation and a 448-page report that detailed extensive contracts between Trump and Russia in 11 instances of obstruction of justice, as well as a massive plan by Russia to meddle in an election. It was greeted with incredulity. Giuliani subsequently whined, quote, we're not meddling in an election, we're meddling in an investigation, which we have a right to do. Mick Mulvaney lashed out at Republicans for not telling him that Donald Trump Jr. would be subpoenaed by the Senate Intelligence Committee. Trump Jr. is expected to invoke the Fifth Amendment to avoid self-incrimination. He has been accused of lying to Congress about the depth and breadth of his contacts with Russia. Trump's former lawyer and bagman Michael Cohen told Congress that Trump Jr. and Ivanka had been extensively briefed at least 10 times on a Russian Trump Tower project deep in the 2016 elections. Trump Jr. in sworn testimony said he was, quote, only peripherally aware of the project. And the Pentagon shifted $1.5 billion in funds to pay for construction of 80 miles of wall at the U.S.-Mexican border. In March, the Pentagon transferred another $1 billion from Army personnel budget accounts to support construction of a border wall. Day 143, May 12th. Former White House counsel Don McGahn turned down two requests from Trump to issue a public statement saying he did not believe Trump had engaged in criminal conduct. The pressure on McGahn, who was a key witness in the Mueller report, was followed up by several critical tweets from Trump who claimed, quote, McGahn, who I never warmed up to, would have been fired before Mueller. 
Trump is also trying to keep McGahn from testifying before Congress. New missiles launched by North Korea appear to have been provided by Russia. Military analysts said they are remarkably similar to the Russian-designed Iskander, a short-range, nuclear-capable ballistic missile. Trump has said previously he had fallen in love with North Korean dictator Kim Il-jong. When asked after the launches, he said, quote, Nobody's happy about it, but we're taking a good look and we'll see, we'll see. I know they want to negotiate. They're talking about negotiating, but I don't think they're ready to negotiate because we either have to do, it's very much like China. Trump then went on a rambling digression about China. Russia has launched a new effort to discredit American efforts to roll out 5G telecom service, claiming without justification the new service holds extreme health hazards. Russia Today, Russia's chief propaganda arm, has already run seven long programs alleging 5G emissions are harmful. In fact, the space 5G occupies in the spectrum has less possibility of penetrating human skin than that of older networks. In addition, in Russia, the same spectrum is touted as having health benefits. Analysts say RT is running the programming at the behest of Vladimir Putin. Russia is, in fact, unable to launch a comparable network. Trump plans to evict undocumented immigrants from public housing. This would displace more than 55,000 children. Per HUD Secretary Ben Carson, the proposed rule would, quote, make certain our scarce public resources help those who are legally entitled to it. This is a lie. HUD found that the people currently facing eviction under the new rule are children who legally qualified for aid. Date 144, May 13th. China moved to raise tariffs on $60 billion of U.S. goods beginning June 1st. That move came in response to Trump's decision to hike tariffs on $200 billion worth of Chinese products. The S&P 500 fell almost 2.5% on the news as global markets were affected. Trump subsequently claimed China had backed out of a great deal. Trump ordered mass arrests of tens of thousands of illegal immigrants in American cities, including Chicago, in a shock and awe campaign that was ultimately set aside by the Department of Homeland Security. Trump asked for the arrest, mainly in Democratic strongholds. Kirsten Nielsen halted the operation, citing workload. She was later fired. Federal Reserve leaders warned that Trump's efforts to relax oversight of certain financial firms could seriously threaten the stability of America's financial system. An oversight panel said it planned to stop designating large non-bank financial institutions like insurers and asset managers as systemically important. That oversight was put in place after the 2008 financial crisis that aimed to prevent non-bank financial firms like the American International Group from posing a risk to the American economy. Trump's chief economic advisor said American consumers would be hit in an escalating trade war with China, contradicting Trump's claim that trade wars are easy to win. Those comments from Larry Kudlow reflect basic economics. A former campaign staffer accused Trump of sexual misconduct and pay discrimination in a lawsuit is seeking to expand the scope of pursuit that others, including Omarosa, may sign on. Alva Johnson alleged in February that Trump kissed her without her consent at a campaign rally in Florida. Johnson, who was black, also alleged in the original lawsuit that Donald Trump for President Incorporated paid her less than her white and male colleagues with similar job titles and responsibilities. Date 145, May 14th. Trump ordered plans to be drawn up that would send 120,000 troops to the Middle East. Trump also recalled all personnel from the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, Iraq. John Bolton and Mike Pompeo have claimed that Iran is planning aggression against U.S. forces there and in Iraq. That view has been greeted coolly by allies in Europe who say there is no evidence of any kind to support that. Bolton has called for U.S. military action against Iran for decades. U.S. Attorney General William Barr tasked the attorney for Connecticut to review the origins of the Russia investigation. The direction which Trump immediately claimed he did not ask for is a bizarre one concerning the origins of the Russia investigation are well known. 
The origins of the Russia investigation are that two of Trump's campaign aides were caught on tape drunkenly bragging to federal agents they had Russian-supplied dirt on Hillary Clinton. In addition, the links between Russia and Trump's campaign staff so alarmed the FBI, they immediately ordered a counterintelligence campaign, but kept it secret so as not to influence the election. However, Trump has repeatedly and falsely claimed the investigation was a witch hunt by Democrats. The House Intelligence Committee has brought its inquiry to examine obstruction of justice claims against Trump's lawyers. Lawyers for Trump and his family are alleged to have shaped false testimony. In related news, Donald Trump Jr. agreed to testify to the Senate after being subpoenaed. William Barr met with Nancy Pelosi. Barr, apparently joking, asked if she had brought her handcuffs. Trump called Hungary's dictatorial Prime Minister Viktor Orban highly respected. Trump added, probably like me, a little bit controversial, but that's okay, you've done a good job and you've kept your country safe. Orban has been shunned by the rest of NATO and has vilified immigrants and gays in a scorched earth campaign that has included anti-Semitic references to George Soros. And Trump appeared to attempt to take credit for the Boston Red Sox's fortunes, tweeting, quote, Has anyone noticed that all the Boston Red Sox have done is win since coming to the White House? Others have also done very well. The White House visit is becoming the opposite of being on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Day 146, May 15th. Alabama voted to effectively outlaw abortion outright, even in cases of rape or incest. The bill, pushed forward by a nearly all-white, all-male Republican caucus, is intended as a direct challenge to Roe v. Wade. Governor Kay Ivey signed the bill. Trump declared a national emergency to protect U.S. communications networks to allow him to bar American companies from doing business with certain foreign suppliers, including the Chinese firm Huawei. Trump claimed the foreign adversaries are exploiting vulnerabilities in U.S. telecom technology and our services. Huawei has been frequently criticized by Trump for allegedly having backdoors the Chinese government can use to spy on people. The White House rejected another round of document requests from the House claiming Democrats were, quote, replicating the work of the special counsel. Pat Cipollone, the new White House counsel, claimed Congress does not have the standing to investigate the president. This argument received a dim reception from a federal judge who appears poised to rule that Trump cannot stonewall Congress. Amit Mehta, a U.S. District Court judge in Washington, patiently explained to the White House's lawyers that subpoenaing Trump's financial records was, in fact, a valid exercise of congressional power. Trump also said he would not sign an international accord intended to pressure the largest internet platforms to eradicate violent and extremist content. Trump claimed the United States is not currently in a position to join the endorsement and claimed the best tool to defeat terrorist speech is productive speech. The agreement, called the Christchurch Call, came after a terror attack on mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, spread virally over the internet. However, Trump launched a new tool for people to use if they feel like they've been wrongly censored, banned, or suspended on social media. The tool, which collects significant personal information, says, quote, No matter your views, if you suspect political bias caused an action to be taken against you, share your story with President Trump. 847, May 16th. Jared Kushner apparently stumbled through a presentation of a plan to overhaul the immigration system, failing to offer solutions to some key concerns. In other cases, Kushner did not have answers to senators' questions. The plan would emphasize immigrants' skills over their family ties and would significantly scale back family-based immigration. Kushner surprised senators by saying he would not address DACA, which is a key to gaining Democratic support. One listener said that Kushner, quote, is in his own little world. Russians hacked voting databases in two Florida counties. Those incidents took place in 2016, and the new Republican governor said no election results were compromised. However, the governor would not identify the counties affected, and outside observers said that because of Florida's balloting system, hackers might even be able to fool recounts. Trump pardoned former media mogul and close friend Conrad Black. 
Black, who once owned the Chicago Sun-Times, published a biography of Trump titled Donald J. Trump, a president like no other. Black had been convicted of obstruction of justice and fraud for pocketing money. He spent more than three years in prison. Trump was scheduled to testify at Black's 2007 trial before Black's lawyers nixed it. Three radio stations in Florida are airing snippets of a speech Trump made in the panhandle for two minutes every hour until Election Day. The stations began inserting snippets ranging from 90 seconds to two minutes of Trump's rally speech into their hourly programming without introduction or explanation. If the stations continue, they will give Trump 18 free days of airtime by 2020. There are currently 29 open investigations into Trump and his inner circle. Ten of those are federal investigations into money laundering, hush money payments, allegations of insurance fraud. Eight are at the state level, including illegal use of money collected in an alleged Trump charity, tax schemes and fraudulent filings, and 11 congressional investigations into obstruction of justice, foreign influence, money laundering through his inauguration, communications with Russia, misstatements of access, and fraudulent tax filings. And Texas Senator Ted Cruz said that Trump's space force is needed to prevent space pirates. Quote, pirates threaten the open seas and the same is possible in space. It is unknown where these space pirates are coming from. Barsoom? And a new poll shows Joe Biden beating Trump by double digits in 2020. The poll conducted by Quinnipiac in the key state of Pennsylvania reflects growing anger toward Trump among white voters who backed him in 2016. 77% of voters do not think Trump should get another term. These are the Trump Diaries. I-94 spoke with author Tom Conda about conspiracy theories and the corrosion of modern politics. Conda discussed the origins of conspiracy theories, the nexus of modern politics and the far right, and why false information has surged in recent times. This segment contains an excerpt from his new book, read by Shanna Van Volt. A peculiar event that occurred during the presidential transition period may illustrate how inferential and oblique rhetoric can build on social network conspiracism to create serious real-world problems. On December 4, 2016, a young man named Edgar Welch entered the Comet Ping Pong Pizzeria in Washington, D.C., wielding a rifle to rescue, quote, child sex slaves he believed were being held there. Finding no captive children, Welch surrendered to police. Initially, the incident seemed inexplicable, even random, but was actually linked to a conspiracy spread by, among others, incoming National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, who in November had tweeted, You decide. NYPD blows whistle on new Hillary emails, money laundering, sex crimes with children, etc. Must read. Flynn's tweet was too oblique to be held against him, but his son and chief of staff, Michael Jr., fared worse for his more direct tweet on the day of the incident. Quote, Until hashtag Pizzagate proven to be false, it'll remain a story. The left seems to forget hashtag Podesta emails and the many coincidences tied to it. End quote. Flynn Jr. lost his position on the transition team. What, exactly, either Flynn was talking about is not clear, and few could figure out the, quote, coincidences that linked a D.C. pizzeria, Clinton campaign manager John Podesta, and an imaginary pedophilia cult. News reports generally offered a brief explanation along the lines of national public radios, quote, Internet users have developed a wholly fictitious conspiracy theory that maintains Comet Ping-Pong is the site of an international satanic child abuse cabal hosted by powerful Democrats, including Hillary Clinton. Speculation and fabrications tied to the bizarre conspiracy theory have been relentlessly circulated by politically motivated fringe sites." 
which internet users fabricated this theory is rarely addressed. Flynn Sr.'s original tweet did not mention the pizzeria, but tagged alt-writer Mike Cernovich and his Danger and Play website, where connections were being bandied about. For example, an artist, Maria Abramovich, emailed lobbyist Tony Podesta, inviting him to a dinner party and asking if his brother John might like to come. Abramovich joked about her spirit cooking, a reference to her 1996 portfolio of prints of that title, which was an occult reference going back at least to the Victorian era's Aleister Crowley. Cernovich elaborated on the hidden meaning of the Cernovich elaborated on the hidden meaning of the invitation. Quote, Occult symbolism, as I've reported on extensively, is done openly to taunt the public. It's a form of power and control. Secret societies do not want to remain secret." Unquote. Cernovich's efforts were part of the larger network focused on satanic child abuse and bloody rituals. Some of the participants in that network interpreted other emails from John Podesta about pizza or pasta as coded messages. And, since Comet Ping Pong was Podesta's go-to pizza restaurant, others examined the images on the restaurant's menu and discovered coded pedophilia instructions, a long-standing and constant internet phobia. Soon, a 2010 internet frenzy that had tried to link both Bill and Hillary Clinton to child sex trafficking in Haiti was recycled to buttress the hashtag Pizzagate story. There are two conspiracy theories almost invariably takes some sort of leap beyond where it needs to go for the explanation to make sense. So a lot of times it's an accusation that there's some sort of conspiracy. And that can be as simple as, as bribery. Uh, a, a bribe is a conspiracy. Uh, and so it, it's not necessarily a, myster a mysterious thing. It's not necessarily an esoteric thing. It's nothing that, that one needs to pay any attention to. The true conspiracy theories reject the accepted approach to understanding what's happening. They, they assume that there is some sort of secret activity going on behind the scenes that uh, fools most of the people, but not them, and they make this intuitive leap to it. That's actually where we get groups like the Illuminati, uh, which did exist at the time in the 18th century, but there's, there, it, it's an intuitive leap that people make in order to, to add some sort of substance to their, to their thinking. Are you saying that a conspiracy theory comes, in a sense, out of somebody who is trying to, in a sense, appear more knowledgeable than other people or more knowledgeable than he or she possibly could be? More, certainly more knowledgeable than those people because it is axiomatic among conspiracy theorists that most of the public is being fooled or manipulated by the conspirators or their, their controlled media or the government, or some combination of those things. Whereas they themselves broken through this and are in a position to tell you what's really going on here. I think that's a, that's a good point to, to talk about the subtitle of the book, which is How Delusions Have Overrun America. You, you talk about, or you write in the book, that uh, there were certain things that happened, especially during the civil rights movement, things like... Uh, COINTELPRO and the Pentagon Papers, where major uh, 
domestic and foreign policy decisions were being made without the public's knowledge. So that uh, post 1950s, 1960s, the public was much more likely to believe that there was this hidden hand. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about that change in mindset? Well, uh, it largely it was uh, a serious decline in the level of public, not just in government, but in institutions really across the board. And that's not gotten any better in recent years. But certainly in the late 1960s, the early 1970s, the things that you mentioned, such as the COINTELPRO, uh, the Tuskegee experiments, uh, the, the, well, the moon landing, for that matter, it, it became a popular culture sort of affair. You see a tremendous number of movies that have to do with conspiratorial themes showing up. It simply becomes part of people's routine thinking. Not that they believe the conspiracy, but it, it becomes something that's no longer a fringe matter, and that's largely because of, of the, the decline in public trust. Uh, and in, in recent years, that decline seems to have extended into the field such as uh, medicine, public health, so that many people won't vaccinate their kids, or they think that AIDS is a conspiracy, or they think that Ebola is a conspiracy. Any number of things uh, have, have grown out of that mistrust. Wednesday the 22nd from 7 p.m. to 10 is uh, Towards a Newer Metal. That's N-U hyphen E-R. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we all know, love, um, grew up to new metal. Sure. Uh, it, was, it was our math rock. It, it, it was, you know. And so it's nice to see that there are still uh, individuals, artists, acts, carrying the torch of mm-hmm. new metal and this is part of an ongoing lecture and performance series discussing not just the new metal we knew in the past mm-hmm. or the new metal that we have in the present but the future of the that new hold for new metal yes um there's a gimp slash gas mask enhancement workshop uh to Beautiful. get your your costuming on yeah. on right where you want it to be it's uh, it's wonderful that we are training uh we we are preparing the new metal artists for the future. We we are, you know, you never know when the next um, limp biscuit, the next corn, because is around the corner. Um, around the corner, and, and as a matter of fact, there is there's uh, another big thing uh, part of the uh, towards the newer metal mm-hmm. is the lyric writing roundtable, and I've actually gotten a chance to sit in on one of these and an really? older one. Yeah, you know, I'm not much of a sure. musician, but I'm a writer, and I love to find new interesting ideas. Um, Here's some here's some lyrics that that were workshopped the one time I went that I thought was incredible. Um, you ready for this? Sure. <clears throat> slashes to slashes, dust to dust. With the blade in my hand, kill you I might. Forget about falling. It's for poor distant punks. I tell you, I'll see the pain after I see the trunk. That who I I can't legally I cannot name names. I who, uh, who said that, but that it's going to be. They clearly have a. A great future ahead of themselves. I felt. I felt the rhythm. I. I felt a lot of things. Um, sure. And uh, I felt. I felt the elaborate costumes. Yeah. It, and it, you know, if if the sort of these workshops and all that aren't for you, it's worth checking out. If only for the Mudvayne tribute band that's ending the night. Uh, Berber Dang, incredible work. 
or well, once again, qualitative language. Sure. It's 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 uh, well, if you like Mudvayne, you'll love this band. Are we cool yet? 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 The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.